Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. Our co-host, Damien Garde, is out this week. It's Thursday, March 11th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Which country makes better COVID vaccines, the U.S. or the U.K.? Natasha Loader, the health policy editor at The Economist and a London resident, has strong feelings about this question and many others. She'll share with us while also making Adam eat some crow. Gee, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> it was. Uh, next, we'll chat with stat reporter Casey Ross about the downfall of Watson Health, IBM's failed AI healthcare initiative. Lastly, synthetic biology. What is it? Stat reporter Megan Akashivan will explain. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, the chief revenue officer of Stat. There have been tremendous leaps forward in recent years in digital health, but there's still a long way to go. I'm here with Chris Benko, the CEO of Conexa, a software company dedicated to making clinical research more agile, safer, and friendlier for the people who participate. Chris, what are some of the obstacles preventing expanded use of digital biomarkers in clinical trials? Thanks, Angus. Utilizing wearables and sensors for vaccine and drug trials involves more than just selecting cutting-edge digital tools. You need to make sure that new digital biomarkers are collecting valid, reliable, and compliant data. At Conexa, we are focused on building tools that will provide the most meaningful patient data. For more information, visit ConexaHealth.com. That's K-O-N-E-K-S-A health.com. In the international race for COVID vaccinations, the UK was the first to a key milestone. It was the first country to authorize a fully tested COVID-19 vaccine, the one from Pfizer. And the country has also embraced a strategy of spacing out vaccine doses to cover more people with a first shot. The UK has now given 34% of its population at least one dose, and about 2% have been fully vaccinated. That's according to Bloomberg's vaccine tracker. Here in the US, we've given 18% of our population at least one shot, and just less than 10% are fully vaccinated. So to discuss who does it better, we invited our friend Natasha Loader, health policy editor of The Economist and host of The Economist's new podcast, The Jab, to join us today. Natasha, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Hey, hey guys, I'm so pleased to be here. So, Natasha, um, we have to get to the most important question of the day first, and that is Team Megan and Harry or Team Royals? Oh, Team Megan and Harry, no question whatsoever. They, they're just, they're awesome. I love them. They got out. It's great. Good for them. Speaking of ancient British institutions, let's discuss Oxford University and its COVID-19 vaccine partnered with AstraZeneca. There have been very different approaches to this vaccine in the UK versus the US. In the UK, it's a source of national pride and is already being administered widely. While in the US, we're waiting on data from a phase three trial run here. In fact, Adam even nominated AstraZeneca CEO Pascal Sorio as among the worst biopharma CEOs of 2020, writing, quote, like a baby boomer dancing on TikTok, it's impossible to look at AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine efforts without a feeling of disbelief bordering on disgust. Despite a promising start, the vaccine program, which is partnered with the UK's Oxford University, has been one misstep after another, almost all self-inflicted, unquote. So that was in December, and more data have come out since then. So, Natasha, does Adam need to bite his tongue? Wait a second. Before Natasha answers, I want to say that I was pretty proud of that TikTok. That's why I quoted that, it. That I used. Okay. All right. 
All right, Natasha, go ahead. I mean, Adam needs to bite his tongue, tongue about all sorts of things. I mean, I, in, in your intro, uh, Meg, you referred to um, how we were the first to approve the Pfizer vaccine. And I can remember being having a sort of epic slapdown from Adam on Twitter saying, oh, you totally overhyped that story, Natasha, uh, when I said that there was this big news coming. And he said something like, oh, yeah, big news tweets are like trailers for summer movie blockbusters. They rarely live up to expectations. <laughs> and the next day, just out of pure sort of, I don't know, I don't know, maybe spite, maybe it was. I went and looked at all the headlines and all the newspapers and they were all saying that the UK had done this first with the Pfizer vaccine. So I kind of felt quite justified. I, I admit it. I admit it, Natasha. You are you are one hundred percent correct. Um. Oh, look on the. Thank you. That's really <laughs> sweet of you. No. Look on the Astra um vaccine. I would say look. The, there's no question. The data has been messier than everyone would have liked, and. Certainly, there was some confusion um, in the initial press conference um, that made it harder to report. And I remember, in fact, after the the press press conference, I was being asked a lot of questions. You know, is it sixty percent? Is it seventy percent? Is it ninety percent uh, efficacy? And I stuck with seventy percent at the time for the simple reason that I didn't know whether the um, this sort of special half dose group had been predefined. I mean, I know it's a bit of a nerdy sort of discussion to have. Um, All that said, I always had quite a lot of confidence that it would get sorted out, confidence that I think was not shared by everyone. I remember there was a piece in Wired almost maybe a day or so afterwards, which was very sceptical about the AstraZeneca data. Again, a lot of people just wanted to give it a good kicking for various reasons. And I've always felt the need to just be a little bit more careful because, you know, well, we know now, and, and it was clear to me then, that we would need people to be confident en masse on this vaccine. And so even though there were some problems with the data, if they could get ironed out, it, it seemed that, that it would probably not matter in the longer term. So, Natasha, it's my turn to quote you. Okay? Oh, go on. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> so, so last month uh, you tweeted, here's a quote, I am ridiculously pleased that Oxford has done a big, and then you use the stick out your tongue emoji, uh, to all the vaccine doomsayers. So I wonder, do you feel like you were rooting more for the homegrown UK vaccine than any others? I'm going to get on my high horse again. I've been rooting for this vaccine from day one because there was a commitment to creating a great vaccine at huge volumes, about three and a half billion doses around the world at low cost. And if you look back at our history with uh, outbreak medicines, whether it's HIV antiretrovirals or with H1N1 vaccines, the lesson we had from those incidences was that rich countries get medicines and poor ones don't. And what have we done this time around? Almost at the same time, simultaneously in rich countries and poor, we have we have launched this medicine. That's a historic first. Yes, it's a British vaccine and I have some pride in that. Obviously, Astra is an Anglo-Swedish company. It's an international global pharmaceutical company. You know, I'm sure you guys think that Pfizer is an American company. Well, guess what? It's only American because you wouldn't let it go to Ireland. So, you know, it's like, yes, I'm pleased. I'm proud that we supported that vaccine from an early uh, stage and I'm proud that it's getting delivered around the world today. So how do people in the UK view the US's approach to vaccines and our vaccination strategy? I think there is an acceptance that different countries go different routes. I don't think, I mean, I know that the 
many Americans kind of look down their noses at the way we've done things. And I wouldn't say that the same has true been true in reverse. Um, I do think that um, you could have done more to uh, expand the distance between the first dose and the second dose. I think that we took a calculated risk on extending the dosing, uh, extending the dosing, and. I know that the purists will say, well, you didn't have the data. Well, maybe, maybe not. There was a bit of data for the AZ vaccine. And we do know generally for vaccines that a longer dosing schedule is generally better. Now, that's not a lot to go on. um, But uh, I, I think, you know, we're in a pandemic and British people are quite pragmatic. And also we have a much stronger sense of our society and societal needs um, in in Britain than, than perhaps in America. You know, when we had the debate in Britain, and we did, I, I would put it to people like this. I would say, okay, you've got two doses of vaccine. Which of your two parents are you going to give it to? Or are you going to give them one dose each? And, and that kind of really put it in perspective for a lot of people. Now, it is a gamble that has paid off. I think they did take a bigger gamble with the extending the Pfizer um, dosing because they had no data basically for that. Um, and the other thing just to bear in mind is that when we took that decision, um, you know, our deaths, and you must recall, of course, we're having a terrible outbreak. Our deaths were so high that when I looked at, you know, if I multiply out, you know, the size of the UK to the size of America, we were losing a kind of equivalent to about four and a half thousand people a day at that time. So you kind of need to understand that. It's like, how bad a public health decision could that be? How much of a mistake could that be for you to actually cause more death by extending the dosing? It's it's kind of hard to see that you could get that decision wrong if you're if you're losing that many people. Maybe we can all agree that the United States and the UK are doing better than Europe. Yes, we can. I mean, I think in terms of procurement, you've done brilliantly. Um, I think your distribution saddens me, I have to say, the way that um, it's been done. And I think that's a consequence of your health system. I mean, the fact that you know, 65-year-olds are having to sort of go onto an event website to try and get a vaccine dose, like they're trying to get Barbara Streisand concert tickets. It, it, it's kind of shocking to me, I have to say. And, you know, we have a list of every single 80-year-old in the country with, with their comorbidities and their 70-year-olds. And, you know, they get a text message from their GP or for their doctor, come in for your vaccine. They're not having to sort of, you know, try and complete online for life-saving medicines. So I think, you know, while your science and technology has been brilliant, it, it's the distribution has really kind of revealed some of the sort of underlying fault lines in your system. And that's not to say that Britain is perfect. There's lots of things that we did absolutely terribly wrong um, from the science to test and trace and things like that. You know, the government here has also been using the Defense Production Act to great approval in this country to prioritize vaccines. But has this been having an impact internationally? Yes. So I've just spent the last couple of days um, in a Chatham House um, uh, meeting with uh, vaccine suppliers, um, vaccine supply chain people, governments and the like. And there is a a growing sense of disquiet at how the Defense Production Act is having an impact um, on the movement of key critical items. And, you know, just to let, you know, just to sort of explain, you know, vaccine supply chains are global, you know, um, although the US has tried to be quite independent when it comes to, um, you know, all the sort of doodads that you need, you know, actually things come from everywhere from Europe, whether it's tubing, sterilization equipment, bio bags, and things like that. 
And the Defence Production Act um, is definitely causing, uh, you know, delays to um, everything from raw materials to um, key bits of equipment. And so what we could get into, and this is really the concern that was raised in the uh, meeting, we could get into a situation where there are sort of tit for tat um, export controls, and that actually could um, essentially kind of gum up the whole uh, vaccine uh, production. Um, it's, you know, it's worth highlighting, I think, that, you know, except for mRNA, all the other vaccines are made using the same equipment that you use to make monoclonal antibodies. And so if we don't sort this out, this is clearly going to have an impact on the production of um, other drugs, you know, life-saving drugs, monoclonal antibodies. How can it not? You know, anything can go in a biobag. And so if you're trying to get up from 3.5 billion doses of vaccine or whatever it is we produce um, annually to, you know, 14 billion, right, that's a big deal. So on your podcast this week, you have an interview with the organizer of the world's first challenge trial for a COVID-19 vaccine. The idea being volunteers are exposed directly to the virus. Uh, these were advocated uh, as a way to speed up vaccine development. But, you know, now we have, uh, you know, multiple vaccines that are already authorized around the world. Um, what's the point of this now? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I would love to read their application to their ethics review board. And I'd love to read, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall when they had the discussion. I mean, clearly they've convinced someone that the benefits are worthwhile. I mean, I think we can all see that there's a risk there, right? Even if you take young, healthy people, um, you know, there's the risk of long COVID, there's the risk of complications. We don't really understand this disease. We do human challenge trials with diseases that we understand much better and that we have rescue therapies for. So, you know, there are all the reasons that we do them. I would say that Britain has had a lot more experience doing human challenge trials over the years than many other countries and probably were a bit less squeamish about them. I'm not sure why that is. Um, maybe it goes back to the fact that we do have much more of a sort of sense of, you know, community and society when it comes to healthcare. I don't know. I'm kind of just, you know, guessing really here. I have a hunch. I mean, I would just ask this question, Adam. Do you think this is a trial that could ever get off the ground in the US? And if not, why not? Well, I think, you know, it just seems like in the current in the current situation now where we have vaccines available, like why would you go into a trial like that? Like I guess, you know, you could you could propose a trial and maybe scientifically it's justified and maybe even from an ethical standpoint it's okay with obviously with safeguards in place, but like as a as a potential participant, why would you why would you want to enroll in a trial like that? I suppose, look, here's what you might get out of it. If they come away knowing what the correlates of protection are right? And then you can then apply that information so that basically you never need to do a phase three trial again for a COVID vaccine, then that is actually kind of quite useful. And, you know, remember that most vaccines that we do approve just generally are done on correlates of protection these days because they're kind of revisions and we don't rerun the phase three trials. So you could argue it from that point of view. Natasha, thanks for joining us. Oh, is that it? Oh, my God. I thought you were going to be much tougher on me. I was ready for a real roasting. <laughs> you know, we're in and out in this podcast. You know, we, we give you a few minutes and then and then the hook, you're out of here. IBM launched its Watson Health Business with an audacious promise to revolutionize the practice of medicine with artificial intelligence. But years later, and after billions of dollars in investments, 
Watson Health is a failed enterprise. Last month, IBM put the unit up for sale. So what went wrong? A stat investigation published this week points the finger squarely at IBM leadership, which focused Watson Health priorities on splashy, truth-stretching marketing campaigns and short-term financial goals. What IBM did not do is invest in the time-consuming technical work required to build a sustainable AI business that could match all the hype. Stat reporter Casey Ross has been covering IBM and Watson Health for years. He co-wrote this week's investigative piece with fellow stat reporter Mario Aguilar, and it's based on internal IBM documents and interviews with former employees. Casey's here to tell us more. Welcome to the podcast, Casey. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. So, Casey, you know, until I read your story, I had forgotten that IBM's push into AI and healthcare started 10 years ago. But as you report, it didn't take long for those lofty ambitions to diverge from reality. Where did it start going wrong? Yeah, you know, IBM came out of the box very aggressively marketing this product in a whole bunch of different domains, cancer, genomic data analysis, um, analyzing data for hospitals and insurers. Uh, clinical trial recruitment. Uh, and to be fair to IBM, everybody was lapping it up, right? I mean, including the media, uh, which was writing glowing stories about Watson. The problem was that its technical capabilities never really caught up with the marketing. It wasn't able to deliver on its promises in all of those different domains. And this pretty yawning credibility gap opened between what it was saying in its press releases and in its marketing and then what it was able to actually deliver in the market. And it just wasn't able to recover from that. So cancer was a big focus for Watson Health. IBM ran commercials in which it claimed that its AI system could outthink cancer. But you interviewed a former employee who said it was all made up. The actual data never supported the cancer marketing, right? They never really engaged in studies that supported the notion that the use of its product could significantly improve outcomes or certainly uh, that it could save lives. I mean, the, the, the science just never really supported that from what they were able to generate. And, and beyond that, uh, it, the marketing also really technically overstated how the product works. It's, it doesn't read your medical records, for example, and form its own conclusions that would drive forward knowledge or, or help personalize treatments, really what it's doing is it's referencing uh, recommendations that are baked in by several dozen physicians that trained it at Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Center. That's very different from automatically reading data and, and producing solutions or, or recommendations that um, that reach beyond uh, sort of existing knowledge about cancer. IBM was very good at negotiating deals for Watson Health and signing a ton of partnerships, you know, which it liked to tout in press releases. What did you learn about those partnerships and business initiatives after the publicity died down? We learned that it really just wasn't able to execute in all those different domains. One of the core ones is is hospital analytics and uh, insurance companies where they were trying to feed them um, insights from data that would be provided by those entities. Early on, Watson Health acquired four companies, uh, Truven, Explorus, Fitel and Merge Healthcare. All of them provided different kinds of data, clinical claims data, imaging data in the case of Merge. And the problem was that you need to be able to integrate those 
data uh, into a common format in which they can be read by the AI to be able to deliver on those insights. That was always the promise, and it was really the core business. That was that was the business that was going to drive most of the revenue. IBM was never able to technically integrate them. They never released uh, a dedicated cloud repository in which the data could be collected. So uh, a lot of those partnerships that it signed early on with hospitals and insurance companies and others just really went nowhere. And as we noted at the top, Watson Health has been a disappointment for IBM, and it's being put up for sale. Yet elsewhere, there are other tech companies like Google, Amazon, and Microsoft, which are investing heavily to bring AI into healthcare. Are there lessons in Watson Health's demise that these newer entrants can learn to, to avoid making the same mistakes? Yeah, I think there are a lot of lessons. Uh, I think the first is let the science do the talking, not your CEO, not your press press release. I think you have to go to this with some level of humility uh, in talking about what the AI can do. And you've really got to let the technology perform. You need to produce data and science and engage in that science uh, in order to deliver on the promises uh, in a way that's going to bring uh, clients and customers to you, uh, you know, you just can't do that by over-marketing. Uh, the other thing I would say is that having a product that performs technically, that's, that does what you say it's going to do is one thing, but it's just an entire different thing to integrate uh, that product into drug discovery or into uh, clinical care to to provide insights or deliver treatment recommendations for something like cancer. There's just a whole different domain um, of understanding the implementation of those products and how they are going to work with existing practices that has to be done uh, in order to get these products to work in the industries or in the the sectors in which it's trying to be implemented. So, Casey, do you feel like IBM deserves any credit for its role as an early mover in AI and healthcare? Yes, I would say absolutely. I mean, they were a pioneer in this space. They they came before so many other companies in trying to implement uh, AI. You know, the, there's sort of, sort of that analogy of the pioneer that they face on the frontier, a lot of hidden dangers um, that, um, you know, that can cause the, the pioneer a lot of harm. In this case, I think that analogy doesn't really pan out because although IBM was a pioneer, it wasn't those inherent dangers that really caused it to to fall apart or to suffer here. It was its own self-inflicted wounds. It was, you know, overreaching on the marketing, not engaging in the science. Uh, and so I think those are um, important uh, lessons to take away from this going forward. And how did IBM respond to your reporting? Well, the, you know, typically, you know, this was years of reporting, really. Um, you know, we started back in 2017 and, and then they sort of engaged. But at a certain point, they, they sort of stopped engaging and just would issue, you know, statements, basically. Uh, and and that's what we got in this case. They were essentially just saying, well, uh, you know, we're proud of what we did. Uh, you know, we we were a pioneer in this space. You know, we're an early mover. Um, at this point, IBM, you know, doesn't seem to be uh, engaging to try to build, uh, you know, Watson Health uh, or even its Watson AI engine in healthcare any longer. Casey, great reporting and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on.
You may know nothing about synthetic biology or even know what the term means, but if you've been vaccinated with either of the mRNA-based COVID vaccines, or if you hope to be soon, you're being protected in part thanks to synthetic biology. Thankfully, stat reporter Megan Akeshevan has become our resident expert on SynBio, as it is fondly called. She recently authored an in-depth report on the subject that is available for sale on Stat's website. And yes, that is a shameless promotional plug. Megana is here to help us better understand SynBio and how the field is evolving. Hello, Megana. Hi. So let's start with a definition. What is synthetic biology and how does it differ from genetic engineering, which is a term that I think more people know and understand? Synthetic biology is sort of a famously hazy term, but um, we could say that synthetic biology tries to re-engineer nature from, from the bottom up. Um, it basically pieces together, you know, the most basic molecules like uh, pieces of DNA or RNA to create biological machinery. So um, basically, instead of tweaking something that already exists, like what we'll see in genetic engineering, like you don't um, necessarily just take something that exists like a piece, a stretch of code and then change a couple pieces of it. What synthetic biologists do is um, they, they build that whole stretch of code completely from scratch. Um, and so, you know, I think that the way that they like to um, define it is, you know, synthetic biologists do take that bottom-up engineering approach, whereas bioengineers or genetic engineers do something more of a top-down approach where they take something that exists and changes it. So we mentioned that the mRNA-based COVID vaccines, those are the ones from Pfizer and Moderna, rely in part on SynBio. How so? So the COVID-19 vaccines from those companies uh, contain synthetic stretches of, uh, you know, custom-built mRNA. Um, and those those bits of mRNA that are found in the vaccine end up prompting a person's cells to create a protein fragment that resembles part of the virus and um, helps, you know, kick up an immune response. Um, that that custom portion of mRNA, you know, it's it's all synthetic biology. That that was uh, the the technique was invented um, after you know H one N one spread around the the world a little bit, and people were trying to rapidly develop a vaccine, and they discovered that you know piecing together portions of RNA that you know mimicked what exists in nature uh, ended up working quite well in a vaccine. So yeah, it's it's a fairly synthetic vaccine. So what are some of the other medical applications for SynBio? Well, CAR-T um, therapies are becoming more and more uh, popular in, in terms of like treating patients, but also just in terms of research. They're, they're, scientists are trying to um, develop better ways to re-engineer cells to attack cancer. And using synthetic biology, um, some you know researchers and companies are creating really novel um, types of immune cells that can attack cancer that just do things that would never actually happen in nature. But, um, you know, the synthetic biology process allows really specific and unique, like, uh, alterations to attack cancer. Um, other forms are, you know, microbiome therapeutics, where, again, you re-engineer a cell to um, do what you want it to do in the, in the gut to, you know, uh, create some sort of like homeostasis or attack a, a you know a pathogen or something like that. Like there, there are a couple of microbiome therapeutics that are in the works. Um, there are a lot of diagnostic tools that are being developed with synthetic biology now, um, and then tissue engineering. You know, we hear about the uh, the organs that are de being developed for transplant inside pigs, and uh, and that is actually an aspect of um, synthetic biology right there because you are changing something that <laughs> exists in nature with a very specific end. You know creating something from scratch. So your report highlights some of the emerging companies in the SynBio field. We won't ask you to name them all, but tell us about one. Um, I thought BitBio was kind of a fun company. It's um, it's in Cambridge in the UK. 
And uh, they are basically, again, engineering cells from scratch, but these are human cells. And so what they're doing is um, identifying the sort of growth factors that need to be in the environment to change cells from like, you know, your basic stem cell into something completely specialized in the body. And they're actually trying to create every single type of cell in the body. I mean, they're pretty far away from doing that, but they've they've succeeded uh, with with like synthesizing certain types of cells in the body. And it's, you know, it's kind of a fun company. So. So once again, you can purchase a copy of Megan's report. It's titled Understanding Synthetic Biology uh, on Stat's website. Megan, thanks for your time today. Sure. It was, uh, it was a fun effort. <laughs> That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Embonado and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode and what you didn't like. And who makes a better COVID vaccine, Americans or Brits? You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud@statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.